Welcome again to the Inland Empire Church of Christ. It's great to have everybody back in town. Teen ministry. Amen. It's great to have uh, the Edge ministry back in town. The campus ministry back in town. It's great, of course, to have Mike and Libby and all those that went out on our mission planting, our mission trip to the to Middle East. Not a planting yet, but we went on a, a mission trip. How many of you guys went out to the Middle East? All right. I know we're going to hear from you guys next week. Hopefully a number of you uh, at the regional worship service out uh, next week together with our Desert Cities ministry. But it's great to have Tom Bundy back from Jerusalem. God is working in a great way. Uh, certainly we're still really filled with faith from our, our campus ministry conference out uh, in Colorado. The title of the campus ministry conference was Higher, and uh, certainly it lifted all of our faith uh, much higher. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about faith, and I really believe none of us want to stay the same in our lives. We all want to make changes, right? We don't want to feel stagnant in life. We need to be growing. We need to be changing. We don't want to stay the same person. I hope you don't want to stay the same person. I hope you want to grow in the likeness of Jesus. Amen? And with that in mind, I started thinking our theme for the year is a great thing, you know, transformed. And uh, what we really need is a transforming faith. And I want to share a story, a little bit about the power of true belief and true faith. And it's a story that... Um, was told by a college student, so I'll read it from his perspective. He said, in college, I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to be graded on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of my talk was The Law of the Pendulum. I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs a swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum is a pendulum can never return to a point higher then the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc, until finally it is at rest. The point of rest is called the state of equilibrium, where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal. Our physics majors would, you know, agree, yes, that is correct. The law of the pendulum, that makes sense. I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of the blackboard in the class with a thumbtack. I pulled the top of one side and made a mark on the blackboard where I let it go. Each time the top swang back and forth, I made a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swinging and come to rest. When I finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved my thesis that the pendulum, when it started here, would go back and would never swing past where it began. I then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. All of my classmates raised their hands, and so did the teacher. He started to walk to the front of the room, thinking the class was over. In reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling, ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude but functional pendulum. 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord had been attached to the ceiling so that it would act as a pendulum. I invited the instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against a cement wall. Then I brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose with some help. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, I once again explained the law of the pendulum 
that he had applauded only moments before. If the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this massive metal, it will swing across the room and return short of the release point. Your nose will be in no danger. After that final restatement of this law, I looked him in the eye and asked, Sir, do you believe this law is true? There was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip. And then, weakly, he nodded and whispered, Yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and started back. I never saw a man move so fast in all my life. He literally dived from the table, deftly stepping around the still swinging pendulum. I asked the class, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? And everyone unanimously answered, no, he doesn't. True faith is a transforming faith. And allows us to stand in the face of fear because we know what our faith rests on. True faith transforms us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we find the, one of the greatest passages in all the world on what real faith is. We're going to draw today from this text and go back and look in the Old Testament at actually the, where the, uh, the writer of the Hebrew letter gained his insight from the book of Genesis. But, but let's read together Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 7. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We need a transforming faith in our life because none of us want to stay the same. Even if your life, life is awesome right now, give it a week. And what you feel is awesome, you go, you know, I got to keep growing. I got to keep changing. I got to keep transforming. God made us to want to keep changing. No matter where we're, some of us are going through some difficult times and we're like, yeah, I need to change. We need transforming faith. And that is God's intention for all of us. You see, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without a real faith, a transforming faith, a faith 
that is more than words, but it's one that will live, be lived out in your life. You cannot please God. You know, he says, those who have that kind of faith, they believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We need to put our full confidence in who God is, in his word, and what it means to have faith in him. We need a transforming faith to change us. And we got to all keep changing. Till the day we die, we got to keep being transformed into the likeness of our hero, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? So I want to make three main points on this transforming faith. And I want to go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to look at the three different patriarchs that were mentioned just in those first verses here of, of Hebrews. We need a transforming faith. And the first one we find in Genesis chapter 4 is the faith of Abel. And let us go there. And we're going to begin to study that. My first point is a faith to worship. A faith to worship. Transforming faith is a faith that really worships in the way God wants. I want us to begin to read there in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. He says, Adam lay with his wife Eve. And she became pregnant. And gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Let's stop right there. A faith to worship. You know what's interesting here as we come upon, you know, the son's of Adam and Eve. You know, the scriptures nowhere in Genesis mention that they are supposed to bring an offering to God or that, that there's, God has a desire for that. There's no mention of a need to sacrifice. You know, we hear about Cain and Abel. Certainly we, we hear about Cain and we see what he did and we see his, that murder that he commits right there. But you know, what's interesting is that Cain was the first man to bring an offering. You know, he was the first, it says right there, to want to honor God or please God in some way. Yet as you dig into it and you begin to evaluate, you know, man, man does have a desire to worship God. We were made to worship God. Sadly, though, even as you look in the text, it seems clear, especially in retrospect, as you see what he did in response to how his offering wasn't accepted, that his motives were probably more to please himself even in his worship of God. See, often our interest in God is a selfish interest. You know, he was a farmer, says he he worked the soil. 
And he needed rain, and he needed the sun, and he needed the soil, and he needed things outside of his control to produce a crop. And so he thought, you know, I gotta, I don't, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give some kind of offering. I'm going to give something because I'm hoping I'll get something in return. You know, he expected something. It's kind of clear though that he expected God to repay him. He was thinking, you know, my. It, my worship, I, I got to do something because I need this for my own sense of self-esteem. My sense of I'm the first son. I need to have success in the work that I do. And there's something outside of my control. Maybe if I give a little something here, I'll get a little something in return. And he finds a God that is not really interested in the offering itself, but in the heart of the one who offers. And since his motives were selfish, he didn't give his whole heart. You know, see, God is not interested in religious service. He's not interested in do's and don'ts. You think about other texts in the Bible, you know, Psalm 51, as David is reflecting on his sin, he says, you know, you know, you do not desire sacrifice. You know, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. A humble heart willing to surrender itself to its creator. A trusting heart that's not looking for something in return, but just looking for a relationship. You know, and Cain is, is really, he's all too like we are. Wanting something in return. Right? Wanting a little something. You know, why do we worship God? What brought you out today? Was it duty? Was it because you had to? Was it because you've been conditioned to do it? It's scary to me as I reflect on Cain that he's very much like myself. His self-esteem caught up in, in how he accomplishes things. And doing things so that he can get something in return. And then what happens is he doesn't get the favor of God, right? He doesn't get the blessing. God didn't look upon what he did with favor. Although God, you know, later comforts him and says, hey, you know, come on. He does want to encourage him and say, if you do what is right, come on, if you do what's right, things are going to work out for you. But he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get what he thought he deserved. And he got mad. And he decided, you know, I'm going to take revenge. I didn't get what I wanted. Things didn't go the way I planned them to go. So I'm mad now. I deserve this. I gave you something. We're like that, aren't we? As Christians, as men and women that want to serve God, we can be just like that. Things don't go the way we want. Well, then, I, then I'm quitting. Didn't go the way I wanted. I didn't get held up enough. I didn't get praised enough. Nobody recognized what I did. I'm quitting. I'm moving. I'm going somewhere else. We have within our minds a sense of self-esteem that's based upon our own, our own standards. And the higher we see ourselves, the more we think we deserve. And then when we don't get it, we get mad. We are very much like Cain. And God wants us to look past. The, he's not, he doesn't need a thing from us. What he wants is relationship. What he wants is our heart. And, of course, you see the example of Abel. We read there in, in verse 4 of, of, of Genesis 4 that he brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And, you know, when I, when I read that in the NIV, I thought fat portions. And I always think of, I, I like steak. I don't know about you, but I like some good steak. You know, a good T-bone steak. 
or a good, you know, New York part of it. And especially you get that T-bone with a big part of the filet on the other side, right? You want that. I love steak. But, you know, on the New York part of the steak, there's always that big layer of fat on the side. You know that part? So when I read this text, I thought, he gave the fat. That's the part I cut off. Now, you look at more in depth into the actual, you know, uh, the, the, the Hebrew wording right there. You find that the word fat, it doesn't mean the same kind of fat. The, the, the concept there that the Hebrews would have understood is the good portion, right? The choice parts. And other, other versions of the Bible use the term the choice parts. The filet mignon of the best and most healthy part. You guys with me? That's what he gave. That's what he gave. The choice parts. Do we give our very best? God looked with favor on Abel and says, I love the way you pray to me. I love the way you worship me. You know, and I hope that's how we can feel in our, in our days. I hope on your way to church you can sing in the car with your kids and just say, you know what, God's favor is upon us. I hope you can pray regularly with your family and just feel the favor of God upon you. God wants to look upon us, not for all the things we do, but because we give Him our whole hearts. See, God is looking at us and saying, if He sees the heart. Remember the story, we read it oftentimes, even in our offering talks, about the widow who gave her last penny. And what Jesus loved was not the penny, but the heart. Everything she had. God's looking at our hearts. Do we give God our very best? Our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our best time, our best talent. Or do we give our best to all the distractions in our culture? And American culture has a lot of distractions. All of us got to pay our bills. All of us got to have jobs, make money, pay your bills. And God wants us to be responsible, hardworking people. But do you give your best to your worship of God? Do you worship God even in the way you perform your career? Everything I do, I do it to the glory of God. Do you say that to yourself? On a practical basis. You know, life gets tiring. It's so easy to cut corners in what we perceive to be our offering. You know, Cain right there, you know, he gave some, he gave some, some, some of the fruits, but he, but he maybe didn't give his best. He gave something, but he didn't give his best. And see, God is asking us to have a transforming faith that calls us to give our best talent, our best time, our best energy, our best effort at responsibility. Does your faith make you bring your best to God? And it comes out not just on a Sunday morning. It comes out every day of the week. You know, do you do your best when it comes to finding somebody of the opposite sex? My edge and campus ministry. Is that our priority? You know, a lot of times that's what we get excited about. Some of us, you know, we do our best just simply for education. You know, I got to get it. Got to get my degree. And we'll give our best to that. We're like, I'm tired of getting our little B's or C's. I'm getting some A's. Amen. Get A's. But don't substitute career advancement for worship of God. 
That doesn't mean you can't worship God. Because, see, God expects you to do what you do for his honor and glory. And at times there are sacrifices. Sacrifices of time. Sacrifices of energy. Sacrifices of mission and purpose. Give your best to your kids. Be of, above and beyond your worship to God. You know, I believe absolutely we've got to give everything we can to being the best parents to the glory of God. But it's our worship. And I want you to evaluate right now. When people say about you, you're normally just feeling awesome about life because you're worshiping God. You're giving it all. Even though things aren't always perfect in your life, there's a sense of peace in you. See, there needs to be more peace in us because of a transforming faith than, than the, you know, the Buddhists, than, you know, than the pagans. We need to have more joy in our faith because of a transforming faith that's hearted before God than people that are making ten times more money than us. Or are you stressed? Are you down? Are you feeling wrong? I don't get, I'm not getting what I deserved. I deserve more than this. See, that, that was the heart of Cain. Wasn't getting what he deserved. Because his worship, the fundamental part of his worship was selfish. It was for what he was going to get. I want you to look at your worship. We need a transforming faith that causes us to give up everything and be wholehearted. That we give our best to our God in our worship. Amen? You know, point number two, a faith to walk. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5, let's look there in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. You know, this is a really interesting passage talking about a man that was taken off the earth. We know what happened to Elijah, and Jesus, of course, ascended. But Enoch here, in the, in the days of the old ancient patriarchs, what's interesting is back in this day, you know, the patriarchs lived a long time. Even though they were taught in the Garden of Eden, if you, you, know, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you, would, uh, you would surely not live forever. God said, no, you'll die. And the Satan said, no, nah, you'll surely not die. But yes... You're going to die. And what's funny is they did live a long time. They lived, you know, 900 years. So, Methus- I mean, so Enoch here, if he's 65, and the average person was living roughly 850 to 900 years or so. And at age 65, he decides to walk with God. So, you know, in our generation, that's, that's you know, getting up there a little bit. You still got some good life ahead of you. You can make a great impact. But, you know, you're not a kid. But relative to his day, that's a young age. I mean, that's like you live into 900 and at 65, that's like, I guess, 10 years old or less or something that you're getting, you're, you know, you're walking with God. Is it ever too early, teens, to start walking with God? It's never too early. It's never too early to start walking with God. You are missing nothing by walking with God early. I long to have met a faithful, fired-up disciple whose life could be imitated at 13. Who could have shaken me and said, wake up. i got a mission for your life. God has a plan for you. Your time, your talent will be used for something so much greater than American popularity. It's never too early to walk with God. 
You know, what's interesting also, it says that after he became the father of Methuselah, then he walked with God. And I think that fatherhood humbles us. And motherhood humbles us. And we realize two things when we become a father. We realize that, one, God loves us immensely because we can't help but just be enamored of our child. We almost can't express in words how much we love our kids. Those little babies that do nothing for us except we just love them. They cry, and they poop, and they cause problems, and they can't let us sleep. We can never go to the movies anymore on our own. I mean, life is tough, right? But we cannot put in words how much we love them. And as they grow older and older, even when they're 20 years old, we love them. We want nothing more. Every age, we just want them so desperately, so desperately to do well and be okay. You know, what we really want is them to be near God. And we realize, you know, if we love our kids that much, that's how much God loves us. And we're just like, wow. And then we realize how little we know about being a good parent. We realize, uh uh-oh, it humbles us. We go, I I need help. We love something this much, but I I don't want to mess it up. And we always feel like we're messing up our kids, no matter how how much we try not to. I mean, because we know our own sin. We go, oh, they're going to imitate that. And so we always feel like we're messing them up. And so we go, I need you, God. And so Enoch began to walk with God. And that's a good thing. It's it's intended. I'm glad fathers get humbled. And the example is that they begin to walk with God. We need a transforming faith that causes us to walk with God. And see, walking with God means being near Him daily. It means leading your family on that walk. Family devotionals. Family prayers. Bibles open in the home. Your home being used, it's just you're walking with God. People in and out of that house doing Bible studies. Hosting events. Hosting devos for the, you know, edge ministry. Hosting events for the teen ministry. Hosting events in our homes for other married couples. We just use our homes because we walk with God. And so many of you are incredible examples. Thank you for that. If you haven't used your home yet, as you walk with God, start using it. Open it up. If you need help knowing how to do that, give me a phone call. We have a lot of events to plan in the edge and campus ministry, and we will use your home, okay? So you just give me a call if you want to use it. we we got lots of plans to put into practice, and we want to use your nice living room and your big backyard and your patio and everything you put in there. It's God's anyway. Let's use it. But we got to walk with God. we got to walk with God. Connected with Him daily. Is it about your time with God in the mornings? Yes. Is it about your prayer life? Yes. But it's about what goes through your mind each day, each hour. Are you walking with God right now as you sit in this auditorium and listen? See, Enoch went walking one day, and he never came back. God took him away. Are you willing to be taken away by God? Are you willing to be sent by by wherever God wants to send you. You know, we have a, a great couple in our ministry, Joe and Lorian, that were taken away. They're walking with God. They said, I'll go to Utah. They went to Utah, and guess what? Yesterday, they got engaged. Isn't that awesome? And let me share some other great news. They studied the Bible. A, uh, Lorian met a guy, which before she went to Utah, she met a guy at the bank. She's working at a bank here in Rancho Cucamonga, who was actually from the area and was, had gotten um, recruited to play football for the University of Utah. So when she got out there, part of the mission team, they invited him out to church. He's been studying the Bible. He got baptized this weekend, too. We got a football team, uh, a football player in the church in Utah 
you know, I really appreciate that. They're walking with God. We need to walk with God. Amen. My last point is this. A faith to work. We need to have a faith to work. And we find Noah, the ultimate example of this, as God, God was burdened by all the evil of mankind. You know, he, he, he was moved and grieved, the scriptures say. But skip with me. And God was going to put an end to all of life on earth, it says in Genesis 6. But he decided to reserve for himself a remnant because there was a faithful man. Look in verse 7 of Genesis 6. He says, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the, Lord, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and cut it with pitch inside and out. This is you, how you are to build it. And he goes on and explains it. Now skip down in verse, to verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. You know, Noah found favor with God. And he had a faith. And even though the culture around him was just degenerate, it was a wreck. Just like our generation. It's a wreck. Look around you. It's, it's just a wreck. Lives are destroyed all around us. Yet God reaches down into this darkness. And he has a desire to light a bright light of hope in your city on your campus, in your home, just as he did in this day. And he said, Noah found favor. Noah, build an ark. Build an ark. What? Yeah, make it a, a foot, and a, uh, you know, a hundred, you know, how big they say, 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half, right, in size. And build it right here in the middle of land because I'm going to send rain. God said build. And transforming faith says, if God says it, just start working. Just start serving. Just start moving. The details will come, but get busy. Faith. A transforming faith works. It's a light. It wants to make a difference. It gets out there and makes a difference. Think about Noah. All the resistance to him working. Every tree he cut down spoke of God and said faith. Every plank that he put up on that ark Every board he nailed in screamed faith. Every time he took another step and built something out of that ark and nailed another nail, it cried faith, faith, faith. Our work for God, it cries out faith. Tough times, resistance to what we stand for calls us to have a transforming faith. And I'm so excited. You know, we're going to start in the Edge ministry just this Friday. And I know later on in the year, we're going to have evangelistic Bible talks in our Edge ministry. And you know what? Evangelistic Bible talks are intended to, to say, by faith, I believe people will come. And, and God's word will change their destiny. And they're going to host these people in their homes. You know, the first thing I ever came to 
was an in-home Bible talk hosted by people who had faith that it would change someone's life. One Bible talk I came to, it changed my life. I would have not met Carrie, Kyle and Caitlin wouldn't be around if somebody hadn't hosted that Bible talk. There's so many things we do as a ministry. We need to have a transforming faith that calls us to work. And as we close up here and as we pray for communion, I want you to reflect on, where's your faith? Where's your faith today? There was a three-year-old who felt secure in his father's arms as dad stood in the middle of the pool. But dad, for fun, began walking slowly toward the deep end, gently chanting, deeper and deeper and deeper. As the water rose higher and higher on the child, the lad's face registered increasing degrees of panic as he held all the more tightly to his father, who, of course, easily touched the bottom. Had the little boy been able to analyze the situation, he'd have realized there was no reason for increased anxiety. The water's depth in any part of the pool was over the little boy's head. Even in the shallowest part, had he not been held up, he'd have drowned. His safety anywhere in that pool depended on dad. So it is with us and God. Let's remember the author and perfecter of our faith as we take communion at this time. Jesus. And remember our Father who keeps us safe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time to worship, to reflect on the faith that you brought through Jesus We want to have a faith to worship you with our best. Father, we want to have a faith that calls us to walk with you every day. That our whole life is immersed in you and your ways. And Father, we want to have a faith that calls us to do deeds of of service to you because you're so good. Not because we earn anything, but because you're so good and it changes lives. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus' body given, demonstrating how to give oneself up. And for his blood shed to give us a new chance every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.